You're a marketer, not a lawyer. But your organization may count on you to identify problematic advertising practices. Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. And I'm Lane Gordon. We're partners in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Law Group. Together, we're asking our Venable colleagues questions that are designed to help you navigate the increasingly complex world of ad law. Each week, we'll dive into a new issue, from negative option marketing to copyright protection to influencer endorsements. Our goal is to give you something to take away from each episode that will help fill your advertising law toolkit. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. Hi, I'm Lynn Gordon, a partner at Venable and chair of the firm's Advertising and Marketing Law Group. Negative option marketing and continuity offers have been under the microscope lately, as the Federal Trade Commission, state attorneys general, and class action plaintiffs continue to scrutinize them. For companies that employ these common marketing tools, what are the keys to avoiding investigations and liability? My co-host on this podcast and colleague in Venable's Advertising Law Group, Shaheen Rothermel, is with me today to answer that question. Shaheen is a partner in the firm's advertising group, and she regularly represents clients before the FTC, including on negative option matters. So, Shaheen, let's talk about some questions that marketers selling products or services on a negative option or continuity basis should consider. Negative option is broadly defined as any type of program where somebody's silence is interpreted as their agreement to continue being charged So that might be something as simple as a subscription program, free-to-pay trial conversion, discounted price that converts into a full-price automatic renewal, really anything that bills you on a recurring basis until you take an action to stop it. So given that broad definition, what are some things a marketer should be sure they're doing as they're making a negative option offer? Well, I think there's really two pieces of negative option offers generally. And one is what I'll call the common sense piece, and the other is really the technical issues. And when I think about the common sense piece, I think about it as, as a marketer, are you telling people what they're going to be charged, what they're buying, how often they're going to be charged, and do they know how to stop? Are they able to stop being charged? It's really basic. But then when it comes to the actual technical requirements, it's a complete tangled web. It's a morass. You've got state laws that require very technical disclosures. So, for example, in California, that the subscription will continue until you cancel. How much you are going to pay today and on an ongoing basis, the frequency of the payments, if that amount's going to change, the fact that it's going to change, and how much it's going to change, too, if you know that, The payment method that's going to be used for the charges, the length of the subscription term, and how to cancel. And if there's anything that is a material limitation of the offer or of the purchase, then the Federal Trade Commission says that it needs to be clearly and conspicuously disclosed. And I think the FTC has really shown that it's going to be focusing on this. It just issued the notice of proposed rulemaking to really expand the negative option rule. What do you think the proposed rule changes and sort of the rules that apply to to marketers? I think it changes a lot. Almost a decade ago, you and I were sitting in a room and we were talking about how the goalpost keeps moving. And you said it's a really dangerous area for companies to be in. And now the FTC has issued this notice of proposed rulemaking that is saying that there are all of these elements that people need to disclose. So things like 
if there's a no refund policy or if there's limitations on the refund policy, that needs to be disclosed. The FTC thinks that if there are any disclosures about the underlying product, like say there's a substantiation issue, this isn't going to work for 30 days, this is a product that's going to take you a little while to work, like a joint supplement, for example, that I take for my knees, that needs to be disclosed and that you need to have people's consent to it. So the FTC's position on consent has moved significantly as well in in even the past decade. So now they're requiring this unambiguously affirmative consent, which means consent to the material terms of the negative option offer and no other portion of the transaction. But is that really a change is what a lot of people are asking. Right. I mean, it's hard. You know, the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, which started a lot of this, requires clear and conspicuous disclosure of the offer that you obtain the express informed consent of the consumer and then have a effective and easy way to cancel. And that all sounds fine in concept. The problem is frequently we're dealing with limited real estate. A lot of these transactions happen on phones and trying to cram all that and your conveying your actual advertising message and then getting that all on a checkout page becomes really, really challenging. And you know, people like negative option offers. They like the continuity. They don't like having to think about, oh, shoot, did I order my supplement this month? What happens, I think, where a lot of the mischief has been is with the free-to-pay. I think there's been a lot of what's called mission creep. And the FTC, because of some hits they've taken on the, the remedial tools for Section 5 violations, try and cram more and more into ROSCA, as you were talking about, you know, just basic false advertising issues. They, they claim a ROSCA violations because they can get either civil penalties or redress under Section 19 of the FTC Act. It's challenging. You know, the AMG case was a great, great thing for people who are targets of FTC enforcement, but the FTC hasn't just stood still. They've got this rule. If that actually becomes a real rule, it will allow the FTC to get tremendous civil penalties for every consumer, $50,000, $60,000 per consumer, arguably. But talking about some of the nuts and bolts stuff, what does it mean to be a clear and conspicuous disclosure? When you're talking to, to clients, what do you tell them they ought to do? To your point, I think that's a great one about the real estate. It has to be unavoidable, right? It has to be something that if I'm on whatever checkout option it might be, if it's on the telephone, if it's on a a mobile browser, if it's on my desktop, it has to be something that I will be confronted with as a consumer and that I can't uh, avoid seeing or hearing as the case may be. So the FTC says that that needs to be set off from the surrounding font. It needs to be set off against the background. It can't be conveyed through a hyperlink, which is a huge one that we've talked about a lot, Len, recently in a lot of contexts is this idea that you can't have a one-click away, according to the FTC at least, to disclose the terms. In a lot of states, it's actually become even more prescribed. So Vermont, for example, if you've got an auto renewal of one year or more, it needs to be in bold. The FTC just said in its notice of proposed rulemaking that the disclosure needs to mirror the way that the claim is conveyed. So if you've got a written claim that the disclosure needs to be a written offer, it needs to be in in writing. If you've got a video, like you have a television ad that's offering a negative option, making sure that that's both spoken and written. The FTC says even if the claim is just spoken, the disclosure needs to be in both mechanisms if the media is both mechanisms. So it's becoming really difficult to your point, Len. The problem for marketers is when you're having free trials or special introductory offers and there's a lot of noise, a lot of effort on the free trial or the low introductory rate, the FTC is going to make it and the states and the plaintiff's class action lawyers are all going to really require a lot 
to make sure that that next step, after the free trial or after the introductory offer, unless you take an action, you're going to be getting billed every month for X and you're going to be getting a package. And I think that's even more so if you're selling a service that isn't obvious. I mean, if you're getting a package every month to your door, you know that that's happening. If you've been enrolled in some kind of credit monitoring service where it's not quite as obvious to you that you've been enrolled and you're getting something, unless you know you look at your credit card statement, which you should be doing, but you know the, the FTC doesn't think that 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 counts as notice. If you're selling that kind of product, I think you have an obligation, and it's just smart to to make sure that the disclosure has to be more unavoidable. And the subsequent communications that are required under state law probably need to be more aggressive because I always tell clients it's not how much money you make at first, it's how much you get to keep. And if you're not being really sort of aggressive in disclosing these things, it can create a host of problems. That's exactly right, Len. The issue I think that a lot of companies deal with is how much to disclose and how to disclose it. So you've got the FTC's position and you have probably about 22 states that say after consumers enrolled in something, they need to receive a post-purchase acknowledgement in a manner that can be retained. A lot of states are not saying, however, that there needs to be renewal reminders. Uh, The FTC said, yes, there should be renewal reminders, but only in the digital space. And I think it was exactly for the reason you just said, is if somebody's getting something every week or every month, they presumably know they're enrolled in something because there's a physical evidence sitting in front of them. But I, I do think that there is an issue with, for at least marketers, in determining really how to disclose and ensuring that you're disclosing it in the right way. And if a lot of our clients or a lot of companies do a lot of notifications and communications with customers generally, like email marketing, transactional emails, just that type of thing, and making sure that those disclosures don't get lost is something that regulators would say. One thing I grapple with as an attorney in this space is what the legal requirements are and what plaintiffs and AGs say the legal requirements are. There are states that don't require any renewal reminders, and then you have a state AG come in and say, well, no, you needed to have a renewal reminder. And I sort of look at them and say, well, where does it say that? We say you need to do it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Happy to fight about it in court. Yep, and that's the problem. Yeah. It's a similar situation that we deal with on the privacy side where you've got this state patchwork, and to some extent the most aggressive state sets the the floor or the ceiling. I don't know which which it is. But if you're a marketer, I mean, it's almost easier just to – comply with the most aggressive state and do that or choose not to do business in certain states. But that becomes challenging, especially when you're dealing with states like California. Opting out of that is, is, is a big hit for a marketer. One of the issues when I talk to clients about this is the friction. You know, all of us love to be able to do things on our phone that are quick and easy. You know, move your thumb a couple times and you bought what you wanted. And the states, the FTC, want friction. They want to slow the buying process down because they have this notion that if it's really too quick and easy, it's somehow a dark pattern and you're manipulating people into buying things that they didn't really want or they didn't know they wanted. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about dark patterns. I think it's just sort of a very ambiguous term that means whatever the FTC wants it to mean at a particular point in time, sort of like Justice Stewart regarding obscenity. Actually, very similar to that But our clients all the time are doing testing, and they find that adding friction to the process hurts conversions. And arguing with the agencies or litigating against the agencies about whether it's friction that's causing that 
diminution in conversions or it's, well, no, people actually understand what the offer is and now they don't want to buy it. That's a very thorny issue that you may need consumer survey work to defend. What do you think about all that? That's exactly right. That question of friction and what is enough friction is one that we encounter a lot of the time, particularly with checkboxes. Everybody asks, do I need to have a checkbox? What are regulators' stance on checkboxes? Do I need to have somebody affirmatively click a button agreeing to all the terms of the offer? And the real answer is, well, I can tell you what the FTC thinks nowadays, and I can tell you what courts say, both in this space and others. And it goes directly to your point about friction. So the FTC has said, or at least it's implied, that there needs to be a checkbox or what they call a separate action agreeing to the terms. California says it needs to be affirmative consent, but it doesn't say what that is. And then we have court cases that have jumped into it. And some court cases say that if you're presented with the terms on multiple pages and you proceed beyond multiple pages and you've been presented with them, that's consent. And then it becomes even more tangled when you think about friction and consent in other contexts where you have general consumer contracting to terms and conditions where a lot of courts, including the Ninth Circuit, say no checkbox is required. So I really struggle with this sort of as a consumer and as an attorney, which is I agree that some friction is necessary, but it sort of blows my mind that somebody might need to check a box for one circumstance, but it's okay for me not to check a box to waive all my rights to go to court and bring a class action and vindicate my rights that way. But I agree. I think the whole point behind friction is making sure that people know what they're getting and they have a moment to stop and breathe and read it. You don't just enroll. How much friction is necessary goes back to the point we were talking about before. That is, if the overall net impression of this ad is you're getting something for free and the catch at the end is you're getting enrolled in something, you've got to be more careful. You can't keep saying free, 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 free during your TV spot or your video on the internet or it's all over your ad and then bury in the fine print that someone's getting enrolled in a you know $79.99 a month supplement or video service or, or whatever, it becomes somewhat of an art as opposed to a science as to where you draw those lines. And you know, It's the net impression and yep. it goes back to that common sense question is what's somebody looking at the overall advertising funnel, the overall consumer experience, what is that going to look like if I'm presented with free, 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 and then on one part of the checkout page, I see something else. Is that enough to really backtrack and make it clear what I'm entering into? And I think the other thing that regulators in particular and some courts look at is they say, how is a reasonable consumer, this fictitious reasonable consumer, going to look at the overall consumer experience and what will they understand. And the FTC, at least, takes a very unfortunate view of what the reasonable consumer is. They believe that people don't really understand anything, that things need to be in their face, and that you can't have a disclosure one click away, as you said. So it's difficult because a lot of times we have companies and marketers looking at something and saying, hey, this is common sense. This is a product that you'd only get on on a negative option basis, and people should understand that. And the FTC takes a very different view. Let's talk a little bit about cancellation because, you know, that's sort of the third leg of the stool. What's an effective method of cancellation? What's the law require and then what's the reality? Well, what I generally tell clients is somebody shouldn't have to gnaw their leg off to get out of the trap that is a subscription. But that's a bare minimum, right? 
if you offer a really easy cancellation mechanism and refund mechanism for that matter, then a lot of times that avoids a lot of the problems. So what the FTC or ROSCA says, it must be a simple cancellation mechanism. What state law says, it must be easy to use and timely, meaning that it's quickly honored, that cancellation mechanism. What the Federal Trade Commission's position now is, is this idea of the no-save really has to be a click to cancel. So that cancellation mechanism has to mirror the sign-up mechanism. If I enroll online, there needs to be a cancellation mechanism that's online. California says that it needs to be in a link that is prominently located in a customer's account that somebody can use to cancel. So if you take all of that together, it really needs to be, that cancellation mechanism needs to be a place that it's easy for customers to find, that they can click on it, that there are no saves or retention efforts unless you obtain the consumer's consent to engage in those saves or retention efforts. And you honor that timely, meaning it doesn't take a week for that cancellation to become effective. And the other thing I would say, too, is that if you have a telephone number, like a toll-free number, which the FTC says you should have a telephone number for consumers to call, making sure that that's appropriately staffed, that it's available at the right times to cancel. It needs to be simple. Long wait times for canceling, especially when the phone mechanism is really the only method to cancel, is a way a lot of companies end up getting into trouble because people say, like, you know, I, I was on the phone for 15 minutes and I couldn't cancel. And when I got on the phone, all they tried to do was save the sale. And that's not a good way to avoid liability. It's interesting. When Roscoe was being considered in Congress, there was debate about whether the cancellation mechanism had to be the same as the enrollment mechanism so that if you enrolled online, you could cancel online. And Congress considered that and didn't put it in the statute. And we've gotten orders from the FTC on the early Roska cases trying to insist on that. We're like, no, you don't have the power to rewrite the statute. The FTC is not backing down on that as much now as they, I think they're more and more suspicious of all marketing. So what are other things that companies can do to avoid regulatory scrutiny? One of the things that I tell clients all the time is that they've really got to keep an eye on what's coming into their call center, their BBB spot, their complaint chargebacks. I mean, if they change the way they're marketing something in, through a negative option, and they all of a sudden see a spike in either chargebacks, BBB complaints, gripe site issues, people calling in to their customer service guy and going, what the hell is this on my credit card? You, you can't ignore that. If the FTC sends you a CID, that's the first thing they're going to ask for is all of that stuff, and they're going to want to know what you did in response. But what else is there? The first thing and the best thing that a company should do is refund people. If somebody is upset, the easiest way to make them whole is give them their money back. People who are unhappy and they, first of all, feel like you've taken their money without their authorization, didn't let them get it back, those people become very vocal, as you said, on those websites. They'll complain on the BBB site. They'll complain online. They'll find a plaintiff's attorney. They'll write letters to their AG and FTC. And if enough of those come in, then that's what triggers an investigation. And one thing that I hear a lot on the BBB side is companies will say, I have an A-plus rating. And the regulator will say, well, you'll have so many complaints. And they'll say, well, that's all the complaints I have. And the regulator will say, well, the BBB complaints reflect a fraction of the number of overall complaints. I don't know that I agree with it, and I don't know that I agree with a lot of the regulators' positions, to make that very clear. But they'll say that's that's too many. And then we say, well, we've got an A+. And then the regulators come back and say, well, that just means that you responded to the complaints. That means you waited until somebody was 
a screamer and then responded. So yeah, I agree that's a problem. I think periodic compliance audits of your program is another way to do it. Go in and look at the cancellation mechanism, look at the front-end enrollment, look at your customer service, and look at it from the positions of different people. Your target consumer, of course, depending on what you're selling, but also somebody who might not be as sophisticated. A lot of times I think about this as somebody whose English might not be their first language. I have a lot of family in the country who don't speak English very well, and they might not understand necessarily if you've got a bunch of legalese. And so going through and really thinking about this from the perspective of somebody like that or somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, like you said that you said earlier, that 15-minute wait time, that might not be a lot of time for some of us, but if you work an hourly shift and you only have a 10-minute break in six hours, then you can't cancel. So, I mean, the DirecTV case was one of the big negative option cases, and it's one of the ones the FTC got their nose bloody pretty well. What lessons can we learn from that? That is the one case where the Federal Trade Commission took it to the mat, and they lost. And a court applied common sense rules to it. And I think it's a good example of the fact that there is a balance, that the FTC is not always right, but you have to make sure that you're providing all of the disclosures. And you're making sure that it is common sense. And you look at it, like you said, in the context of the product that you're selling. And one thing that is a little bit unfortunate is that we don't have a lot of courts analyzing these laws. We sort of only have the FTC saying, thou shall do this or thou shall not do this. And it's a bit absurd because as you were talking about earlier about when Roscoe was first passed and when we were talking about this a decade ago, the FTC keeps moving its expectations. And one thing that's fascinating to me is if the Federal Trade Commission thought something was required by ROSCA or if they thought it was legally required, then wouldn't they have been insisting on it since ROSCA was passed? And we've seen this move in consent decrees and their position a little bit on these things. And so I think it's definitely difficult for companies in this space to look at this and think about all of the different areas of what a regulator will expect and also how to sell products to people who actually want it. I mean, there's one product that I'm thinking about, a weight loss product that I was signing up for last summer, and I had to take this survey that took 30 minutes that I wanted to enroll in their program, and I finally just gave up on the survey because I was like, oh, this is too much. All I wanted was them to help me lose weight. So it's a great point. We've talked about this some, but you know, one of the issues I think that marketers really have a challenge with is so much of this happens on our phones. And there's so much regulation on, you have to link to the privacy policy. And there's some you know, good decisions on sort of sh- click wrap and things like that. But the FTC essentially has taken a position that those decisions have nothing to do with disclosure of negative options. And so it, it makes it really challenging to give clients practical advice on this because the real estate is so limited and consumers want to do things in a hurry, especially on their phone. And you have a lot of A-B testing and it shows that the speed bumps are slowing down conversions. You know, you have the fight out. What does that really show? One thing that I also think about is looking at this from a consumer harm standpoint, a lot of times regulators will take that view. If they'll go for where the harm is, and courts are really good about this in California, is they're actually dismissing private cases where let's say somebody says, well, I didn't understand I was signing up for this. And then they were able to cancel within the free trial period, or they were able to cancel once they got their money back. And court said, well, you can't prove under this case called Mayron that there was actual injury resulting from that technical violation. And I think that, yes, it's very difficult for marketers to understand the right level of friction and things like that. But making sure that you are making people whole after the fact and preventing people who are unhappy from staying unhappy. If somebody doesn't want that product, give them their money back. 
if you're running negative option marketing, I think you have to be generous with refunds, especially when it's a free-to-pay conversion, because if you don't, you're going to be having discussions either with a state AG, the FTC, or plaintiff's class action lawyers, or, or maybe all three. Even if you're doing the negative option portion of it right, or arguably right, you need to be really careful that you're complying with the FTC's other guidelines. So in a case where you had a company that was giving testimonials and the failure to disclose the typical results or the average results was a material misrepresentation or a material omission, and that gave rise to penalties under ROSCA because that's a material term of the transaction. So One of the things that always terrifies me, and I counsel our clients, to be less aggressive on the negative option is because that negative options trigger complaints, complaints trigger FTC investigations. Once the FTC starts looking at you, they're not just going to look at the negative option issues. They may look at, well, what's the substantiation for that weight loss claim? What's the substantiation for that joint claim? What's the substantiation for that cognitive claim? And that opens a huge can of worms, or barrels of worms. And if you're going to be engaging in that kind of marketing, you're not just exposing yourself to issues relating to that marketing, but you may be opening your whole business up. We ended up settling a case for a supplement maker in the negative option space. And, you know, one of the reasons we ultimately did it is the FTC was like, if you force us to litigate this case, the complaint's going to look different because we're going to look at some of your efficacy claims. And we settled and they went away. But, you know, that sort of Damocles hanging over the client's neck was scary. I agree completely. One thing that I always caution clients in this area and others for that matter is that risk is cumulative. When you're doing one thing, you've got to make sure that you're doing other things right too. It's not, we don't look at your negative option program necessarily in a vacuum, or we don't look at your claims in a vacuum. We don't look at your social media marketing in a vacuum. In an area like this, when you're selling in a way, you're using a certain marketing channel that might be riskier or more subject to scrutiny then what you're saying, like the claims that you just mentioned, the dietary supplement case that you settle, is it becomes riskier because you have to look at it in the gestalt of it in the whole. Shaheen, any final thoughts? What key takeaways would you ask our audience to have from our chat today? Companies should go through and periodically monitor their consumer experience. And I'd also say keep track of the cases, the FTC's position. This is an area that's moving so quickly that it's very important to stay on top of this. And our blog, <laughs> not trying to put a plug for our blog, but the allaboutadvertisinglaw.com blog is a great way. We do a lot in this area where we talk about what's going on. you got to keep an eye on your chargebacks and what's coming into your call center because that's the best window into whether there's problems with your disclosure cancellation mechanisms. And if there are, you got to fix it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to my co-host Shaheen Rothermel for her insights into negative option and continuity marketing. You can read more on this topic in our Advertising Law Toolkit. It's available at venable.com slash adlawtoolkit. You can also learn more about these and other important topics by following our allaboutadvertisinglaw.com blog. Please join us next week when Shaheen talks lead generation with our Venable colleagues Ari Rothman and Jonathan Pompan. I'm Len Gordon. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show.